destiny I drag you the fact And I give you what's left of me If I held back But I don't need a soul No, I don't need a soul to hold Without you, I'm still whole You and life Chapter 36 You need a jacket, I told Total the next day. We were on the upper deck, and it was like, hey, really cold. The scientist had all sorts of cold weather gear for us kids, so we were okay. They hadn't even minded us slicing long slits in the back. Total was shivering, watching the endless ocean through metal railings. Akila doesn't wear a jacket, he said through chattering teeth. Then go below before I have to chip ice off your nose, I said. Turning with great dignity, he trotted over to the stairs and jumped down them. I really can't get used to a talking dog, said Melanie, coming up next to me. Or even flying kids, really. She gave me a friendly smile, then went back to making notes in a log. What's that? I asked. We document weather conditions every day, she explained. Air temperature, barometric pressure, water temperature, wind direction and speed, what the seas are like. She flipped through the pages in her log to show me month after month of meticulously graphed weather conditions. It was cool that someone was doing this, but it would have made me go gonzo by the fourth day. You gotta check out their computers, Nudge said, running up to us. They are so cool. They can show you what Earth will look like in 50 years, or what would happen if there was an earthquake. Gazi just ran a demonstration of what would happen if a tsunami hit Los Angeles. Cool, I said. What are Fang and Iggy doing? Scalping Brian and Bridget at poker, she said matter-of-factly. Melanie looked up in surprise. What about Angel? She's ahead about 30 bucks. Here's a freebie. Don't play poker with a kid who can read minds. Well, they would have to learn sometime. How long have you been here? I asked Melody out of sheer boredom. I don't usually bother getting to know people because A. I don't trust any of them. And B. We're usually leaving soon, and in a hurry. And C. They're usually trying to kill us. The only humans I'd ever met and liked were my mom and my half-sister, Ella. I've been part of an Antarctica team for five years, she said. She put a small plastic container in a claw-like thing, which she lowered over the boat's side on a rope. On and off, we're privately funded, so every once in a while we run out of money and have to scramble. She looked at me curiously. How long have you been on the run? Dr. Martinez warned us we'd have to take extra measures to keep you safe. I decided it wouldn't be a disaster to tell her. We've been on our own for more than two years. On the run for, I don't know, six months? It feels like forever. She nodded sympathetically. Just then, Angel appeared on deck, stuffing a wad of money in her pocket. Wales, she said. Chapter 37 Huh? I said. Angel nodded toward the ocean. Wales. I wanted to see them. Melly drew up her water sample. Yes, we'll probably see some before too long. There are eight different species of whale in this region. We're gonna see them now, said Angel, moving to the railing. Smiling, Melanie said, we'll definitely see them at some point. No, they're here, said Angel, pointing. They're curious. They think the boat smells yucky. What? Melanie said just as the biggest gall-dang animal I'd ever seen suddenly burst out of the ocean. I gasped. It was like a grain-black wall of wet skin, almost filling my vision. 
It was super close, maybe 40 feet away, and it got about two-thirds of its body above water before crashing back down in a ginormous belly flop that rocked our boat. Angel smiled. That was a humpback, said Melanie. They loved to throw themselves out of the water. You think he was curious? She, said Angel absently, watching the water. She's curious. There's a bunch of them down there. Paul Carey came out of the pilot house. There's a pot of humpbacks all around us, he said. I just saw them on sonar. Angel glanced at him pityingly, but didn't say anything. I can't believe how huge they are. How many of them are there? I asked Angel. Can't tell, she said slowly. They're all thinking at once. Maybe twenty-five? Melanie's brow wrinkled, and she looked at Paul, who shrugged. There are babies, said Angel. They want to come closer, but their moms are saying no. Their moms know the boat is unnatural and shouldn't be here, but they're mostly curious, not mad or anything. Paul looked at Angel. Do you like making up stories about things you see? He sounded friendly, not trying to be insulting. Angel gazed at him seriously. I'm not making things up. Uh-oh. She turned quickly, and two seconds later, another whale suddenly breached, even closer to us, leaping almost entirely out of the water, and then crashing down. It looked so, so fun. He was showing off, Angel told me. Like a teenager. Are we missing something here? Melanie asked. I don't understand. I'm not just a weird little kid, Angel told Paul, whose eyes widened. Well, actually, I guess I am a weird little kid. But not in the way you're thinking. But not in the way you're thinking. I'm not thinking, Paul began, but Angel shook her head. My files should have told you, she explained. I can hear what people are thinking. I decided not to mention that she could often also control what people were thinking. Angel patted her pocket of poker winnings, regretfully, as if she was realizing she wouldn't be able to pull that again on this crew. Not just people, but most animals, too. I heard the whales thinking and came up to see them. Paul and Melanie were at a loss for words. Get used to it, I thought. Chapter 38 It was hard having to stay on the Windy Cay, taking three days to get from Argentina to Antarctica, when we could have flown it in about five hours. We did go for nice long flights a couple times a day. The air was cold, but no colder than it was at 25,000 feet, which was well below freezing. We found out that frigid air didn't bother us as long as we were moving, but standing around on the ship's deck got pretty uncomfortable. Total broke down and consented to wear a small, down dog coat. Aquila had worn it as a puppy. During a record-setting cold spill, when it was like 80 below zero. Land ahoy! Gazzy shouted from 500 feet in the air. He pointed into the distance, where I could see a white island sticking up out of the ocean. Michael Papa squinted at the horizon. It should be visible pretty soon, he said. The air is clear here, so we get great visibility. It's visible now, I told him. We have really good eyesight. Like hawks. He nodded, digesting this. And again, I saw the look of almost envy that I'd seen on all the scientists' face from time to time. No one had ever truly been envious of our abilities before. And it was a cool feeling. The bird kid version of being a football captain or homecoming queen. Sort of. I see gray, like rocks, I told Michael. 
I thought everything was covered in snow. Virtually everything is, he said. But along the coast and some of the outer islands, there are thin strips of bare rock where glaciers have broken off. It's also summer here now, since the seasons are reversed, so things aren't as icy as they can be. I see red buildings. I don't see a thing yet, said Michael. Michael said regretfully. But yes, the buildings are usually bright red or bright lime green to stand out as much as possible. Like if there's a blizzard? Uh Uh-huh. Though here blizzards just mean ferocious winds blowing the ice and snow around. Hardly any new snow ever falls. Almost never. That's so weird, I said. What's weird? Feng asked, making me jump. I hadn't heard him come up behind me, as usual. For the past two days, I'd kind of been avoiding him. I'd stood back and watched as he and Bridget Dollier struck up a mutual admiration society. She didn't flirt with him, but they hung out together a lot, and every time I saw their heads bent over a computer screen or map, it made my stomach clench. Also my teeth. And my fists. That it doesn't snow here, I said. Not a lot of precipitation. Fang nodded. Bridget says the air here is some of the driest on earth. I guess you'll be glad to get off the boat, Michael said. We'll be staying in the guest quarters at Lucier Station. They get tours there every year. I didn't realize we'd be around a bunch of other people, I said slowly. I'd gotten almost, well, comfortable is a strong word, but somewhat less tense, which is about as good as I ever get. I ran the scientist on board the Windy K. I didn't want to start over with a bunch of strangers, especially given the Explodo Pizza in Washington. There are 12 permanent felonies who work and live here, Michael explained. About 40 people in all. Fang's eyes met mine. Time to be back on guard. Chapter 39 A Poem by Max White is the color of little bunnies with pink noses. White is the color of fluffy clouds fluffing their way across the sky. White is the color of soft serve ice cream in a cone. White is the color of angel's wings and angel's wings. White is the color of brand new ankle socks fresh out of the bag. White is the color of crisp sheets and smanchy hotels. White is the color of every last freaking goddamn thing you'll see for endless miles and miles if you happen to be in Antarctica trying to save the world, which now you aren't so sure you can do because you feel like if you see any more whiteness, Wonder Bread, someone's underwear, teeth, you will completely and totally lose your ever-loving mind and wind up pushing a grocery cart full of empty cans around New York City, muttering to yourself. That was my first poem ever. Okay, so it's not Shakespeare, but I liked it. We tied up at Lucier Station's dock, next to a couple of other boats. Awaiting us were a bunch of bright red metal buildings built up on stilts. They're expecting us, said Siwan, motioning to the first building. We can go in, meet some people, and they'll show us to the guest quarters. Okay, I said, teeth prepared to clinch, pre-battle adrenaline starting to trickle into my veins. There was no green. No trees, no shrubs, no grass, no weeds. There was also no sidewalks, no trash, no skyscrapers, no cars. It was completely different from anything we'd ever seen before. And suddenly the phrase, polar opposites, made a lot more sense. This is like being on the moon, Nudge said in an awed voice. It's so clean. We're explorers, said Gezi happily. We might see stuff no one else has ever seen. I looked at my flock. Each one of them seemed a little nervous and a lot excited. 
They had a real purpose, beyond just cleaning the rooms, or keeping watch, or finding food. Even if that real purpose was concocted by scientists to keep needless panic in the populace, still. The kids felt as though they could help. Clearly, they just wanted to forget about this time three weeks ago, when we'd been fighting for our lives, again. And I mean, why would any kid want to forget that? If they really liked being here, really, really liked it, would they still come with me when it was time to leave? Because no matter what happened here, or how much they felt they were helping, we would still eventually have to leave. We always leave. This reality check was brought to you by Max. You're welcome. Iggy and Fang were phasing away from the station buildings, in the direction of the endless whitescape. Fang stood out against the ice, as if carved out of black marble. He turned and motioned me over with a nod. Gosh, lots of... white, huh? I said, bouncing on my heels, already feeling the cold. Yeah? Iggy said in a weird voice. You're actually not missing that much, Ig, I told him. It's not like other places where there's tons of different stuff to see. Everything here is pretty much white. Lots of sharp white edges. Fang touched my hand, and I turned to him. He nodded at Iggy. I know, said Iggy. I can see it. Chapter 40 Okay, I'm gonna float out a theory here, and maybe it's crap, but I'm thinking that the complete absence of color had something to do with the blind kid suddenly being able to see stuff. Cause he really could. I waved my hand in front of his face, and he blinked and pulled away. What are you doing? He asked, frowning. I let my jaw drop open, looking from him to Fang and back. And then Iggy was smiling in a huge way he hardly ever does. And Fang was grinning in a way he hardly ever does. And I felt like skipping around like a ballerina, which, I promise you, I never, ever do. What's going on? Gazi asked, coming over to us. Iggy can see, I said, still unable to believe it. Excitedly, Iggy whirled to see the gasman, and then stopped dead, frowning. He blinked several times. It's... it's gone, he said in a hollow voice. What? You could see? Gazi asked. Iggy turned around again, his head hanging. He sighed heavily, then stiffened. No! I can see again. I can see the White Mountains again. So, here's the deal. Iggy could see whiteness. He could see the shapes of the cliffs and glaciers, the occasional gray rocks jutting out from the snow, the horizon line, where land met sky. When he turned around, the ocean, the rocky shore, everything went blank. I'm cold, I said, after we'd been standing around looking at Iggy look at stuff for a while. Let's go inside. Lucier Station consisted of about 15 metal buildings raised up on steel stilts. Some of them were connected, like stepping stones, going up the nearest hill. A few stood alone. Most of them had snowcats and bobsleds and ice trucks parked underneath. We climbed the stairs, and once again, Iggy had to rely on touching the hem of my jacket and concentrating on sounds around him. I could feel him seething with disappointment. The door of the building opened into an airlock. We took off our jackets and stuff there, then went through another door into the actual station. We met the scientist, who lived and worked at the station, ignoring their curious looks and unspoken questions. They showed us to the guest quarters, which were in a separate metal hut. It was small but cozy and comfortable, with one room full of bunk beds, four high. 
a small living room, a bathroom, and a tiny kitchen. Hey, said Bridget, knocking on our door. You guys want to see some penguins? Yeah, Iggy muttered bitterly. Make them stand against a white cliff. Fang and I looked at each other. Some of us had had new skills show up lately. Would Iggy's be his eyesight? And here's another question. When was all our world saving gonna start? Chapter 41 The Uber doctor's assistant looked up from a computer monitor. The mutants have arrived at the station, sir, as expected. The Uber director couldn't nod, but he blinked. They're all together. None of them stayed on the boat. No, sir. The assistant gestured to his monitor and pressed a button. Instantly, the screen showed a somewhat grainy image of six mutant children trooping across packed snowdrifts toward the Lucier station. The screen split, and the other half showed a still image taken from the inside of the dining hall of the Windy K. Quickly, the assistant zoomed in on the faces of the small group heading inside the station and compared them with the close-ups of the faces on the boat. They matched. All six are accounted for, the assistant said. Very good, said the Uber director. Send a message to our contact, saying that the schedule will continue as planned. Yes, sir, said the assistant, turning back to his computer. The Uber director sent a thought command, and moments later, the door opened. A hulking creature almost seven feet tall and easily over 300 pounds stepped into the room. Ah, Gazan, said the Uber director. The assistant stiffened in his chair and slowly sneaked a peek. If the soldiers creeped him out... This Gazan thing positively terrified him. Not only was he huge, but he had a human face patched onto a Frankenstein body. A curved, shiny metal plate covered part of his bare skull, where they couldn't get skin to grow. One arm was a foot longer than the other, and the hand had metal spikes grafted onto the knuckle bones. His other arm, tinted faintly greenish as if the circulation had never worked properly, was hugely veined and muscled the result of injecting human growth hormone directly into the flesh. The face was human, but when the creature spoke, you could clearly see the bolts in his jawbone right beneath the skin. Just the other day, the assistant had seen Gazan reach out, snatch a songbird from the air, and casually break its neck, tossing the light, brightly colored body aside. The assistant didn't know whether Gazan had morals or ethics or any sense of wrong or right. Mostly what he had been given was extreme, astonishing power. Gazan, the Uber director said again, as the hulking thing stood near him, at attention. It's almost time. Prepare your troops. Yes, sir. His voice ended like a tape of a human voice, played too slowly. A chill went down the assistant's back. Chapter 42 As it turned out, all the world savings started the next day. Now, someone who doesn't know better might think that playing with penguins wouldn't really do a lot to prevent the apocalypse, but hey, we were just there to help. Look at this! I'm a penguin! Angel yelled, flinging herself onto her stomach and sliding down a steep, hard-packed snow slope. She raced incredibly fast toward the bottom, where about twenty emperor penguins waited for her, flapping their wings. Me next! Gazzy didn't wait for Angel to get out of the way. He just threw himself down the slope, cackling maniacally. He collided with her, of course, causing her to skid into a few penguins who, frankly, should have been paying more attention. Two of the big, heavy birds went down, one right on top of Gazzy. 
I heard his breath whoosh out from where I was standing, taking scientific notes. Here's a sample of my contribution to the world's scientific knowledge. Place, Lucier Station, Antarctica. Date, remind me to check and fill in later. Time, hard to tell, what with the midnight sun and all, and I hawked my watch ages ago. Subjects, emperor penguins. Quantity, 27 adults. No way to tell at a glance who's male or female, and I ain't checking under their hoods. 12 fuzzums little chickums. Five avian Americans. Size, these penguins are surprisingly big, about four feet tall. Solid and heavy, judging from the way Gazzy woofed when one fell on him. I'd say 60 pounds? We're talking major birds here. Birds condition. They're hefty little suckers, built for comfort and speed. And they're sure not feeling the cold. I'd put them on the chunky end of the scale. Activity. Basically, sliding on ice, just for fun. Leaping into the frigid water every once in a while, then popping back out as if shot from a toaster. Noticeably fishy smell afterward. One barfed up part of an octopus, almost on Iggy's boots. Good thing his vision was out again. I almost heaved myself. How's it going? Brian Carey asked, snowshoeing up to us. He and Sue Ann, who was with him, had clipboards and special pins that wrote in extreme weather. Did I mention how freaking cold it was? Like, thanks, Mom. Sue Ann looked at the penguins popping out of the water and laughed. They're so cute, she began, as a whole horde of the tuxedoed birds shot up onto the ice. They were squawking and waddling away from the water as fast as they could. And then suddenly, an enormous creature surged up out of the ocean, grabbed Sue Ann by a leg, and sank back down into the black depths. Hey, and thank you for listening to another episode of Maximum Crime, a Maximum Ride bootleg audiobook podcast thing. I am your Olivet Markey, and we are really starting to get into the plot of this book. I kind of actually forgot that a lot of this happened, but uh, it reminded me that there's some very exciting parts coming up, so I am very, very excited to get to those parts. I always forget how much I love this series. Like, it's it's wacky, it's wild, it's weird, but it's my favorite, and I love it. Alright, I don't have any messages or anything, so let's jump right into the recommendation for this week. This week's recommendation is the podcast Creepy Critters. My friend Art runs that podcast, and they are a very lovely person. It's basically where they have a guest star, and they just talk about cryptids. They have a couple little segments, like would you adopt the cryptid? Uh, There's (laughs) a recent one that they started that is incredibly entertaining called Baby Fight, where we try to figure out how many toddlers we think this cryptid could take in a fight. The whole podcast is very silly, pretty informative about cryptids and other creatures. So if you're into stuff like that, I would suggest listening to Creepy Critters. And uh, you might hear a familiar voice in a few of the episodes, especially the more recent ones. So yeah, go check it out. I will leave a link to their podcast in the show notes. Alrighty, if you want to get in contact with me, you can email me at MaximumCrimePod at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on my Tumblr over at Maximum-Crime-Pod. Alrighty, I think that's all I got to say for this time. So until next time, fly on. <laughs>